0: You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. One of the main things that we've seen in the storyline of Esther is salvation. Salvation. Salvation for a man named Mordecai who was sentenced to die And I believe that he was saved spiritually first, and then he was saved physically as well. In addition, we saw the salvation of God's people. They were under a death sentence that was reversed, and we talked about the big reversal last Sunday. Um, Their enemy Haman died, but they were saved and spared to live. And what we're going to see today in, in our last sermon in this great book of Esther is that salvation demands celebration. Salvation requires celebration. If you've got your Bibles, go with me to Esther chapter 9. We're going to pick up right where we left off last Sunday, which is verse 20. And we're going to read all the way through the end of the book, which is chapter 10, verse 3. And the first thing that we're going to look at is that Purim is a party. Purim is a celebration. And just so you know where we're going today, uh, we're going to have four main points. And the first one, just like I said, Purim is a party. Our second point is this is not heaven. This is not heaven. And then as point number three, we're going to have some concluding thoughts, concluding observations on the book of Esther. And then lastly is number four, Jesus is a better Mordecai. So four points under this overarching truth, overarching idea that salvation demands, salvation requires celebration. And the first point is that Purim is a party. Now, I don't know if you have any Jewish friends, family, neighbors, co-workers, but they will have various feasts, various festivals, various holidays that they celebrate throughout the course of the year, one of which is Purim, the one that is talked about in this chapter. If you ever wondered, where does Purim have its origin, where did it begin, what what is it all about? Well, we find it right here in chapter 9 of Esther. As God's people experience salvation, they respond with celebration. That's the great holiday, the Jewish feast and festival of Purim. And let me just say this, as we're going to read in a moment, and we're going to read a a huge chunk of scripture, uh, 12 verses altogether, for this first point. And it's actually a summary statement of the whole book, of the entire book of Esther, and it also gives us the history of this holiday poem. And the big idea is this, at the end of the book, a summary is given of God's salvation, that there might be a celebration. So it is with you and I. We need to make note of the history of God's people. We are part of the great line of God's people, whether it's in Babylon, Whether it's in Egypt or in Persia, wherever God brings salvation, we are a part of that family history. And their salvation is our salvation. Did you know that? And their celebration is our celebration. Similarly, church history is our story as well. The story of God's people, but specifically, it's the story of God at work to and through and for and sometimes in spite of his people. And this is so important because, you know, we live in a day that is incredibly individualistic. We are incredibly individualistic. I would compare the church in the West, and I am included in that, kind of like a drive through at a fast food place. You know, it's in and out as quickly as possible. We got no time to invest and build and build God's kingdom and family. But only our little individualistic kingdoms. But in Scripture, we see the history, and we're going to see in this passage that we're going through today, we see the history of God's people of which we are a part of as well. And we see how God brought salvation to them, and that gives us hope, or it should give us us hope, that the God who showed up in their day would show up today for us as well. And also that he would show up for our children and our children's children. Amen? So as we're reading this, this is God's way of communicating that you and I have this great opportunity to recollect and remember and rehearse, to remember how he has acted and worked in the past. And by the way, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So that he will do the same for us now and then in the future. But as we're reading this, I want us to think about the specific ways that God has brought salvation into your life can we do that today and i'm referring to two types of salvation the first being the most important one which is you know spiritual salvation salvation from condemnation salvation from our sin and death salvation from eternal damnation however you want to say it that's the first that's the that's the main one that's the most important one and then the second being salvation from everything else salvation from sickness as pamela just you know testified right Salvation from accidents and harm, and maybe it was from a sin that plagued you or an addiction that you had, and and God saved you from that. I want you to know that unless we record the way God has worked and saved his people in the past, unless we capture that as a church, as as a person, you won't remember it and others won't remember it either. This is why we have feasts. This is why we have festivals. This is why we have holidays to celebrate, to remember, to make note of. I mean, this happens at a national level too, right? We, where we celebrate Thanksgiving in 4th of July. There's a good reason why we celebrate these holidays. There is. People just, it's just lost on people. That's the problem. But the more important holidays are the ones that we celebrate with the church as the church. That's why at Christmas, we celebrate the coming of Jesus. At Easter, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. These kinds of celebrations are momentous occasions for us to remember the past as we lean into the future. So the first point I want to make is this. Purim is a celebration, and we're going to see in just a second... um, Let's read. Let's read the verses, 20 to 32. I know it's a, it's a big chunk of portion, um, but yeah, let's, let's get to work. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month, Adar, and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies. And as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hammedatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, which is, that is, cast lots. To crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they call these days Purim after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter, And of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation and every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants." Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai, the Jew, gave full written authority, confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 125 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their feast and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim and it was recorded in writing. So, Purim is a holiday. I know that was a mouthful. <laughs> Do you know what a holiday is? Where holidays are holy days, that's what it means. And the reality is that we oftentimes celebrate apart from God or celebrate in defiance of God. We eat too much, we drink too much, it's, we make it about ourselves. And that's very telling of what or who we celebrate so many times. But we can also celebrate with God. We can also celebrate God. Do you know that you can learn a lot about a person by observing what they celebrate and how they celebrate? You know that? And also by observing what they do not celebrate. You can learn a lot about a person. Those who get more excited when their football team or soccer, because I remember that was my soccer days, those who get more excited about their football team or soccer team when they, when they win, that more than them worshiping with the saints on Sunday, they are saying something. That's saying a lot. So my question for us this morning, what do you celebrate and how much heart do you put in it? What do you get excited about? What gets you really excited to celebrate? Because that's a holiday, that's a holy day, meaning a day that's set apart. Do you know that you're not just an individual? You're part of a community, you're part of a family, you're part of a history, you're part of a legacy. And God's grace to you and God's grace through you and God's grace in spite of you, that is a part of your testimony. Do you know why? To help others come to know, to help others come to love and appreciate and trust that this same God that you worship will be there for them as well. That's why. And that his same grace is available to them. Amen? Now, let me just explain this perm holiday. Haman was a godless man, and also Haman was a spiritual man. See, we live in a day when people would say that being spiritual in and of itself is good. You just need to be spiritual. That's it. But that's just not true. That's not true. The Bible teaches that there is one God... And other religions which have worship of other gods actually have demons that are pretending to be gods and goddesses. And so if you will worship them, they will answer your prayers and show up in powerful ways sometimes. But supernatural power is not indicative of the presence of the God of the Bible. Let me say that again. But supernatural power is not necessarily indicative of the presence of the God of the Bible. It is not. There are counterfeit signs, there are counterfeit miracles and wonders, and also the Bible says that Satan masquerades as an angel of light, because the Bible is clear that Satan, the devil, he is a great deceiver, and his intent is to lead the whole world astray, and he's doing a fine job with that. So if you are just spiritual, you are in grave danger, I believe, because in the spirit realm, there's not only God, but there's the devil, Satan. Not just angels, but there are demons as well. So this man, Haman, was a powerful man, and he wanted to, to decide whether or not he should exterminate God's people, the Old Testament covenantal Jews. And what he did is he cast lots. That's what we just read in our passage. They, they call it purr. And the casting of lots, simply put, was uh, you know divination. This is witchcraft. We're talking about sorcery. That's what we're, we're talking about. This is like consulting a medium. This is like astrology. Or going to some spiritual leader that is not a Christian trying to hear from the spirit realm what it is that you are to do in the physical world. Now their assumption or their presumption was that if you roll the dice, uh, then the spirit realm will decide the answer for you as you roll the dice. And then you would obey accordingly. And so the decree was given to assassinate, the decree was given to eliminate all of God's people. And therefore God's people called it called the holiday perm because there was a great reversal and we saw that the great reversal the bible says in proverbs sixteen thirty three very clearly that the that we roll the dice but god determines exactly how the dice fall which simply means he is absolutely in control of everything i'll say that again church a good spot for an amen simply simply means he's absolutely in control of everything amen Now, we need to be reminded that the God of the Bible is over Satan and over his demons. But Satan and his demons can empower powerful men to do horrible things. As a matter of fact, he can empower anyone, for that matter, right? But in the end, it is the sovereignty of God, it is the providence of God that rules over all. And he can bring all to pass just as he decrees. And so, as they are celebrating this reversal, they call it Purim. So again, Haman rolls the dice, but our God controls the dice. Yes, Satan made a decision to destroy all of God's people, but our God is more powerful than Satan, and he has protected his people. He has delivered his people. He has saved his people, and that salvation of his people demands celebration. So they tell the the holiday prayer. It's usually celebrated around March. They still do it. And like many holidays, they eat Together, they eat a lot of food, which I'm not against. Uh, This is all a foretaste, a foreshadowing of the kingdom of God where we will sit down with the Lord Jesus Christ and feast forever. Amen. In addition, they give gifts to each other. That's what we just read. Just like we do in the holiday season. We're kind of around the corner, right? But specifically, they were generous toward the poor. I don't know if you picked that up as we were reading. I just want to camp here for a second. And specifically to those who are the believing poor, right? The single mothers, the widows, uh, the orphans, those who have been negatively affected. And by the way, not by their own sin, negatively affected, or folly, or bad investment, or a sense of entitlement. But because of circumstances that were perhaps beyond their control. People who have been injured on the job or people who were unemployed or single, the single mom who was working hard was struggling to make ends meet. And this is what we call church a great and biblical generosity where, where, where we don't just, you know, uh, uh, enable people that are lazy and so on and so forth. I'm, I'm seeing a lot there. I want us to see this, particularly in this season, that this is not politically motivated or required in the scriptures what what they were doing i mean this is god's people loving this is god's people caring this is god's people who love god and have received the love of god and they are demonstrating this love that they have received from god with generosity towards others does that make sense what can we learn from this to do exactly the same (laughs) Church, do not overlook the opportunities in our community. Don't overlook the opportunities in our own church family. To do good for the people of God as a sense of generosity and love and affection. We start here at some at first. That's not to say that we only give here and help here, but we start here. Why should we do it? Why should we just do it in general? Well, because God so loved the world that he gave <laughs> and, and And our God is a generous giver, isn't he? So we give because we have received so generously from him. We give because he gave first. And by the way, you can never outgive him. But the point is, let's try to emulate our father more and more. Amen? Additionally, what this is to be for us is a sense of a life-giving ceremony and not a routine. Let me just explain. We ought to celebrate and then give generously out of a sense of a life-giving ceremony and not just a routine. Let me explain the difference between the two. We can celebrate and give because we have to. That's one way of giving. Or we can celebrate and give because we want to. For a lot of Christians, and we're going to do this today, we're going to celebrate communion... But for a lot of Christians, the celebration of communion means absolutely nothing. It means a bad cracker and stale juice. That's what it means. And sometimes that's what you taste physically, but that's not what it means. There's more to that. But when you meet Jesus authentically, all of a sudden, communion is one of the most beautiful celebrations ever, isn't it? It goes from routine and it becomes a life-giving ceremony. Oh, communion is about Jesus? Broken body, shed blood, this is meaningful. Oh, wow. Oh, they're going to church. Maybe I should too, going to church. That's to be with God's people and to hear from God's word. And God inhabits his praises of his people. And when I'm with God's people, I sense the presence of God. Oh, that's meaningful. Maybe I should join oh they're singing and worshiping god i love jesus the holy spirit is in me i want to sing too it's meaningful oh the word of god is opened and proclaimed this is not just a monotonous voice of a of a man who bores me to death but this is a herald of life from a man who serves me church the difference between routine and a life-giving ceremony is oftentimes not what happens out there but what happens in here in the heart a life-giving ceremony is where we do things repeatedly. Yes, it's like a ritual. I just didn't want to use that word. But they have meaning all the time. And they give life because they point to life. Every time I hug and I kiss my kids, I think almost every time, not every time. It's, it's not just a routine, but it's because I really, really want to. Every time I hold Emma's hand, it's because I really want to. It's not just a routine, right? I promise you this. Every time I get up to teach the Bible, it's not just routine. It's because there's so much more than that. And what's sad is that over time, this life-giving ceremony has become a routine for God's people. Nah, just a thing that we got to do again on Sunday. And today, Purim is still celebrated, but it's interesting. It's an interesting, it's, it's a curious holiday now. I don't know. Ask your Jewish friends. You can, yeah, they get dressed up, they go to the synagogue or temple, and the entire story of Esther is read. That's good. And as Haman's name is mentioned, they hiss and make all these noises, and, and it's weird and it's, it's loud and very different than usually how the services go at a Jewish temple or synagogue. So in a sense, it's kind of like Halloween, you know what I mean? It's kind of like a Mardi Gras, like people drink too much, wear too little, and it's not awesome. Like, we don't know what we're celebrating, but let's just kind of have fun, right? It looks more like the parties that Ahasuerus threw earlier in the book, if you remember the first few chapters. Interesting. Where people are drinking too much, and bad decisions are being made, and it's, it just gets out of control. That's what we've, we saw in Esther. So let me ask you this. Should God's people celebrate Purim? It's not a sin to. Go right ahead. If you want to go right ahead, you're welcome to. But if you do, just remember, it's all about Jesus. And if it's not about Jesus, then it becomes a routine and not a life-giving ceremony. You see that? You have the outward forms, but not the inward joys. What tends to happen is we throw parties in a way that they dishonor the Lord. That's just, that's just the reality of it. And so much of the storyline of Esther has been a series of banquets and feasts and parties that dishonor the Lord. Men are drunk, women are abused, things are out of control, and evil decisions are made. That's not honoring to God. And so what we have here is a great reversal. It shows us how to redeem feasting and partying and celebrations. It shows us how to redeem holidays. It shows us how to redeem, redeem food so that we're not gluttons but worshipers. To drink so that we're not drunkards but worshipers. To celebrate not in defiance of God but in the presence of God. To live. Coram Deo. Have you ever heard that, that expression? The Puritans used to, used to uh, use it, which in Latin, it's a Latin phrase that means in the face of God, to live, Coram Deo, to live in the face of God, to live as, as though God is watching, to live in the authority of God in the presence of God. Let me submit this to you. Most Christians, this is kind of a pet peeve of mine. Most Christians are better at mourning than celebrating. Did you ever notice that? Especially people in the Reformed theology or Reformed tradition. I'm a little bit, I'm reformish. Anyways, I'm not casting any judgment. But I think we're pretty good at speaking about and focusing on and spotting our sin, aren't we? Like, you know, we we preach about sin here and and how Jesus takes our sin, right? So we we, we preach on that. And we're pretty good at realizing that we're horrible, we're, we're depraved, and we're wicked, and we're sinners. I think we're good at that. All true. But this is not the whole gospel story, is it now? It's not. And it doesn't really lead to much of a party, to much of a celebration when I look at my sin and that's it. But here's the full gospel story. Here is, you know, our full story of salvation, which demands and requires celebration from us. God becomes a man. He lives without sin. He dies in, for our sin. He rose as our Savior, puts the Holy Spirit in us so that we live a new life of victory over sin and and, and that we grow in that every single day. He gives us a new nature. He gives us a new purpose, new family, new eternity. This earth is as close to hell as we'll ever get. It is only going to get better. Jesus has gone before us. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He loves us. He knows us. He seeks us. He serves us. He's prepared a place for us. He's going to set a table for us. He's going to rejoice over us with singing. Well, that's a party right there, isn't it? That's worthy of the biggest celebration, isn't it? And what do we do? We mourn all the time. Oh, look at my sin again and again and again. And that's all we talk about. Our struggles, our sins, our shortcomings... And so what happens if we tend to focus on our sin, sometimes more than our Savior? Focusing on our sin doesn't lead to celebration. It leads to damnation. Now, the truth is that salvation from that sin leads to celebration. Sure, we have to be clear about that. So as Christians, we acknowledge our sin and our brokenness, but then we go to the cross with it. Right, And we focus on Jesus, our Savior, and then we realize, oh, now we have so much to celebrate because he's our Savior and he takes care of our sin. Let me just finish this point with this. Some of us need to learn to sing and celebrate a lot better than we are doing at the moment. (laughs) Just that. Some of us need to learn to shout for joy. I know I do, more than you would watching your football game or your favorite team playing. Some of us need to raise our hands when worshiping with the saints. Some of us need to rejoice with those that are rejoicing. And as we do, it becomes easier to remember who God is and when God has showed up and how God has worked in the past. It's a lot easier than turning the history of God's grace into a bunch of boring facts to be memorized but never enjoyed. See what I'm saying? So we just looked at the fact that Purim is a celebration. And now the second point I want to make is this this is not heaven. This is not heaven. Don't worry, I'm not going to spend as much time on the second point <laughs> as I did for the first. Chapter 9 transitions into chapter 10 to tell us that even though things are okay now, they're better, right? They're, not, they're alive. They didn't die. But still, this is not heaven. Let's read chapter 10, verse 1. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. Great start to the chapter. Now the king, King Ahasuerus, gave Haman the decree, the legal right to kill all of God's people and to plunder their goods, right? We know that. We've gone over that over and over again. But they didn't die. They were saved. So the king taxes them now. Hey, you're alive. Did you get that? They either kill you or they tax you. (laughs) You've got two options. That's how it works. That's how the government does it. I'll just leave it at that. Now, here's what I find curious. They're still where? In Persia, not not Jerusalem. They're still under the king, not a new king. He's still a pagan and godless king, and their taxes have gone up. And what do they do? They celebrate. Horrible circumstances, but they celebrate. Did you catch that? Here's what I'm saying. If you treat this life on earth as your ultimate home, it's going to be hard to celebrate God and his salvation for you. If you treat this life on earth as as your temporal home, and you know that you're on your way to your eternal home with Christ, guess what? You'll be able to truly celebrate here and now. Amen? This is not heaven. This is not heaven. Let's continue with verse 2. And all the facts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced them are, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of and Persia. Let's just stop there for a second. Some of you may say, i looking through my Bible, I didn't see that book of the Chronicles of the Kings of and Persia. I can't find it in there. Good observation. It's because it's not a book that's in your Bible. And you may say, why is it mentioned then? Well, here's why. Sometimes the Bible will mention books that are not in the Bible, and they are not in the Bible because they are not divinely inspired. They are not perfect. They are not sacred scripture. I think in Joshua, the Bible mentions a book that's called the book of Jezer. What happens is sometimes the Bible will reference a historical book outside of the canon of scripture, and it's not that the book is a perfect book or divinely inspired or without error from the Lord, but it's because it does have some truth in it. That's why. And what we have here, the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Media and Persia, this is a historical record. That's what it is. And that's, and when, when they're saying, and what they're saying in this verse is, hey, we're, we're not going to recount all the ways that, that Mordecai was used by the Lord for the salvation of his people. We're not going to do that because we know all those facts. We know all of them. This, this historical record that we have here, uh, you know, we, we had to read it in school, and, and all the kids had to memorize the dates and the facts growing up. So, no need to do that anymore. That's what pretty much they were saying. But here's the idea, though. Let's just pull back a little bit. All truth is God's truth. The, the highest authority is the scriptures. It's even our, one, of the, one of our values, our ultimate authority, right? We believe that all scriptures, God breathed them profitable. And we believe that there's nothing above the word of God. Amen? There's nothing alongside of the word of God. It's our proverbial supreme court. But what what we do believe is that under the highest authority of the word of God there are other authorities and through general revelation or common grace sometimes you'll find truth elsewhere amen This is why we're not scared of science. This is why we're not scared of medicine. We're not scared of business. We're not scared of history. We want to be people who find God's truth anywhere we can find it. And we know that it's truth when we test it by the perfect word of God. Amen? This is why we're not scared of learning. We also don't want to be gullible. We want to be discerning. Amen? So again, what this verse is saying is that, hey, there's some truth over in that book, right? Now, it's not all true. It's not a book in the Bible. But there are some things there that will help your understanding. That's what this is saying. Let's continue with verse 3. For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus. And he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. So God's people are saying we still have the same godless king. He just increased our taxes, but there's still good news. God loves us. He hasn't dealt with all of our problems, but he dealt with our biggest problem, which is salvation. Amen? Additionally, God's people are saying, well, we still have Mordecai too, and he's the second most powerful man in the most powerful nation on earth at that time, and he loves us, and he cares for us, and he serves us, and it's not all bad. Right There's a bit of hope in the midst of what otherwise would be totally hopeless. And why did they love Mordecai so much? Because he led very differently than the godless king Ahasuerus did. And specifically, and it says here, we just read it, it's because he spoke what? He spoke peace to the people. That's a very important word there. It's actually a Jesus word. It's the word shalom. Have you ever heard the word shalom? Did you know that God made the world in shalom? And then sin came into the world through Adam and Eve to vandalize and destroy shalom. But make no mistake, shalom is the world without sin. Shalom is the world without death. Shalom is the world without terror or fear or oppression or suffering. Do you long for shalom? I long for shalom. When God was done with the creation account, he said that everything was good. It was very good. Genesis 131. It was all shalom. It was whole. It was peaceful. It was perfect. It was right. We're talking about wholeness, completeness, soundness. It reflected the character of God, and and then sin came to disfigure and to to stain and to vandalize this shalom, church, the result of this sin coming into our world. And by the way, it's our sin also. We all helped with that and are helping with that. The result is that we live in a world that's not shalom. And Mordecai comes speaking shalom, speaking life where there's death, speaking truth where there are lies, speaking light where there's darkness. The Bible says that the power of life and death are in the tongue, and he's echoing the truth of God. He's echoing the love of God. And it says that his, his, he speaks shalom to the people. He gives them a vision of what life could be like, and, and, and by, the, by the grace of God will be like when the prince of shalom comes back again. It says in Isaiah 9, 6, that Jesus Christ is the what? Prince of Shalom. Do you know why we do not have perfect Shalom now? Because the Prince of Shalom has not returned yet. This passage in Esther shows us clearly that even when there is salvation and celebration, there's still not full Shalom. And yes, when we receive Jesus as our Savior and Lord, We do experience a little bit of this shalom, but not fully, not on this side of eternity, church. The political leaders are not what they ought to be. The financial systems are not what they ought to be. And everything is not right in the world. And we remain restless and frustrated and broken and depressed. It doesn't matter how many wars we fight. It doesn't matter how many... How much money we spend, how many prescriptions we purchase, Shalom is never fully experienced because we need the Prince of Shalom. And Jesus is the Prince of Shalom. And when he comes again, friends, he's bringing Shalom with him because he is Shalom personified. So when Mordecai speaks Shalom to the people, they love him because they hear the faint echo of the coming of the Messiah in his voice. I I have good news. Shalom is coming. But it won't be here until the Prince of Shalom brings it. This is not heaven. This is not heaven. But let me just say this as well. The more we pursue spending time with Jesus, being in the Word, being with the saints, being in prayer, the more shalom we will experience. Amen? Amen. We're getting really close to ending the book of Esther, and I just want to spend a few minutes on some closing observations on Esther. This is our number three, point number three. Some of these observations are a summary of, what, of the overarching truth that we already kind of looked at throughout the book, and at the same time, maybe some thoughts that I didn't get a chance to address through our series. We're going to walk through these really quickly. One of them, and the first one is this. Kings rule over nations, but God rules over them both. Isn't that one of the things that we've seen through this book? (laughs) We've observed the Persian Empire in in, in this king, King Ahasuerus, and we've observed its greatness, right? But at the same time, the brokenness of the human heart apart from God. Church, we need to be reminded of this when people lose all hope. Oh, the nation is ending and the rulers are godless, and what's going to happen? This is not new. It's not new. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying it's not new. From Genesis 3 forward... The record that we have is that it's usually of sin and brokenness and not shalom. That's what we have. But God rules and reigns, and he protects his people, and he provides for his people, and he's always present with his people, preserving his people. Amen? Number two, important ministry work is often done by those not in vocational ministry. Important ministry work is often done by those that are not kind of like me. I'm in vocational ministry. This is what I do for a living. Esther was not a prophetess. Mordecai was not a priest. They're not in vocational ministry. They're in politics. Some people don't need to go to Bible college. They need to go to business school. right? Some people don't need to go to seminary. They need to go to medical school or law school. Some people need to be teachers. And thank God we have lots of those in our church. Some people are moms and dads, and some people need to be plumbers. Whether, whatever it is, if it's under the Lord, it's all worship, and it's not in vain, and God is going to use that. Amen? One of the great myths in the church, I grew up with this, right, is that those who are in vocational ministry are used for the Lord for the most important ministry work. Not necessarily true. True. It doesn't mean that only 1% have an opportunity to do something great and special. It means that all of God's people, wherever God should send you, that's the place where he has appointed you to serve him. Amen? Some of us, yes, are called of God to pursue vocational ministry, but most of us should not. Because what you're doing is so important. You being a teacher, that's where God wants you. Do it for the glory of God, right? Praise God for good politicians. We need more of those. Praise God for good business leaders. Praise God for good doctors. Praise God for good teachers. Amen? Number three, women play important roles in God's kingdom. I mean, you have to be really blind to not see it in the book of Esther, right? Esther is used by God in a powerful and a special way. Her parents are dead. She's an orphan orphan girl. She probably grew up poor. She's raised by a guy who was not at the beginning that great, that great of a dad. She doesn't start off super well, but God used her, uses her, and she matures and she becomes one of the most famous women in the whole Bible. And as an observation, let me just point this out. Her primary contribution is not as a mother. I don't know if you picked that up. See, oftentimes in the Bible, when a woman is mightily used of God, it's in the role of a mother. So Sarah becomes a mom, Ruth becomes a mom, all leading to the coming of Jesus through his family line. Elizabeth becomes a mom, Mary becomes a mom, but Esther, not a mom. No indication at all in the scriptures that she was a mother. We just don't know. Now, we know that motherhood is a calling. Oh, yes, it is. That motherhood is an honor. That motherhood is a special ministry. Yes, it is. We believe that. But here, God uses a woman who's not a mother. She doesn't even have a great marriage. Right? Her husband's an unbeliever, and he's probably got a couple of couple of hundred maybe other wives and concubines. We've already learned in the book that sometimes he doesn't even speak to her for like a month at a time. The question is: is it possible to be a single woman? Is it possible to be a divorced woman? Is it possible to be a woman who comes from difficult circumstances? Is it possible to be infertile, an infertile woman who grows in relationship with the Lord and is used in a significant way? Is it possible? absolutely absolutely that's the great encouraging story of esther that's the massively encouraging story of esther especially for you sisters number four god is relentlessly committed to caring for his people that's what i've seen in this book that god is relentlessly committed to caring for his people he keeps loving he keeps pursuing he keeps serving he keeps investing number five In the end, God wins and his people rejoice. In the end, God wins and his people rejoice. If you forget everything, remember this that in the end, God wins and his people rejoice. This would be a good line to remember. In the middle of the book, it gets dark. Oh, yeah, horrible king, horrible Haman, death sentence. In the end, though, it's a celebration, it's a party. And let me just say this, for us, the end, the end is at the end of this life or if Jesus comes before that, right? Either or, God wins and will rejoice, amen? Until then, we're in the middle of the story and it's dark and it's a death sentence and it looks like God's people are not winning and the bad guys are winning. That's what it looks like, right? People are drunk, people are perverted, men are out of control, women are abused. It's marching off to war all the time. It's chaotic, All of a sudden, I mean, all of this, I should say, is under the backdrop of this incredible story of Esther. And as well, it is at the backdrop or in the backdrop of our story too, now. But you just wait until we get to the end. Amen? The most glorious, the most beautiful of all celebrations and feasts for an eternity, may I add. Right now, friends, we're in the middle of the movie. Don't throw your popcorn on the floor and scream and walk out of the theater just wait, wait until the end. It gets absolutely amazing. Stay in your seat. Wait until the end. It gets amazing. God's going to work it all out. And in the end, will rise from the dead. And sin shall be no more. The Prince of Shalom, the Lord Jesus Christ, will come again. And we will live together as the people of God with something that is far more significant than Purim. We'll have the angels joining in with God's people from all the nations of the earth, singing the praises of the Prince of Shalom. Amen? In the end, God wins. In the middle, it's horrifying. It's difficult. It's complicated. But in the end, God wins and his people rejoice That gives us hope to keep going, church. Take that this morning. Take it. Let it explode. Let this truth explode in your heart. Let it keep you going this week. Hang in there, brother and sister. And the very last point, and I'm ending in two minutes, Jesus is a better Mordecai. Jesus is a better Mordecai. Mordecai saved his people from one nation, but Jesus saves people from every nation. Mordecai was only able to serve God's people in his generation, but Jesus serves God's people in every generation. Mordecai saved people from premature death, but Jesus saves people from eternal death. Mordecai was a godly ruler in a godless kingdom, but Jesus is God, the king, whose kingdom rules over all kingdoms. Mordecai ruled... Over a kingdom that came to an end, but Jesus rules over a kingdom that never ends. Mordecai is celebrated every year a Purim, but Jesus is celebrated every single day, and he will be celebrated for an eternity. And Mordecai brought peace between God's people and King Xerxes or King Ahasuerus, but Jesus brings peace between God's people and God. He deserves all the glory and all the honor and all the celebration. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? I thank you, Father, for this amazing and incredible encouragement this morning. That's, that even though we're in the middle of the movie now, and it may be a death sentence for some of us, Father, depending on the circumstances that you've allowed in our life, but we know that the end is coming, and we know that the best is yet to come and it will be great and it will be the summa cum laude of all celebrations and parties and feasts would you help us father and 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 again i say this and i pray this again that you would that you would help us you know lift our eyes and and from focusing on our difficult circumstances and suffering and set them on you jesus set our eyes on you please would you do that work holy spirit and all of us this morning And as we're waiting for your coming, may we be good stewards of all that you've entrusted us with, Father. Time, money, uh, kids, churches, responsibilities, help us, Lord God, always look to you. Always look to what's coming in the future, the grace that is to come when the Prince of Shalom will come back to take us home. And as as we anchor our hope in that, may we live Coram Deo for your glory alone would you please help us father and would you bear much fruit in our hearts this morning through this uh, last session in the book of esther and we thank you so much for a book like esther that you've included in in the in the canon of scripture thank you so much for her story thank you lord we thank you that you uh, and we love you because you first loved us Help us to emulate you at every step, at every decision that we make. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.